go watch fireworks by any chance? No? No one cares? Okay. Yeah, all right. No, no we didn't either. We, were just, we actually hung out with some of the giggers the night before, and we did not stay till midnight because Ruby was acting up, and it was like late for her, so we decided just to watch TV. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad that you guys are back here with us. Uh, some of you guys know that we're going through the, a new series. We just finished uh, the book of Judges and Ruth last year. We spent about most the, more than half of last year going through it. I think it's time for us, I think it's good for us uh, for as, a, as a fellowship group to go through First John. And uh, it, it is by random chance in our eyes uh, that actually multiple fellowship groups throughout our church is also going through First John. So, so for some of you that are going to do Heart to Heart or T2, uh, there's going to be a little bit of overlap. Uh, we're starting before everyone else, but we're, and, and we're going to go all the way until maybe May or June, depending on the uh, you know, events or anything that goes along or that comes up. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to go through First John uh, to actually find preaching the New Testament. I think some of you probably are wondering, like, can this guy preach a New Testament? Because I think that for the last year or two, I've been in the Old Testament, so I can assure you that uh, I, I do know some New Testament stuff. Um, but before we start, I want to read the passage to us. And then pray, and then we'll get on with the message. First John chapter 1, and we're going to go through the first four verses this evening. First John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed. We have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for another day, another year, where we're able to um, learn more about your word, where we even fellowship with the body that you provided and you purchased with your blood. Lord, as we look back at 2019, uh, may we be mindful of your goodness to us, um, that every day that we have is, is new mercies that you've demonstrated to us. And as we look forward to 2020, uh, may we continue to, to love you more through the study of your word. And may we um, apply your word to our lives so that we can faithfully represent you uh, both in, private, in our private times and in our public uh, life, Lord. Lord, be with us this evening. Give us this, uh, just the attentiveness to hear your word and to uh, be captivated by your son, Lord. We thank you for the time in your son's name. Amen. I do want to start by saying that every sermon that any preacher uh, prepares and preaches, we oftentimes, and we should, we preach to ourselves first. Uh, we usually think about how certain passages apply to us before we preach it to you, and oftentimes I find myself having just to confess a whole bunch of sins to the Lord as I'm preparing uh, each sermon. But the dread of the pastor sometimes is that uh, after preaching to ourselves and seeing how uh, we need to apply it to our lives, is that there are certain people and even the congregation as a whole that we hope would understand and get what we're learning, but they often don't. There are t multiple times where I was preaching to different places where different people come up to me afterwards and say, thank you, pastor, I know that's a good message, and I know that, that this message is, I have someone in mind for, to hear this message. There's someone else that really needs to hear your message. And I kind of chuckle inside. I was like, I don't know if that's like a good thing. Is that I'm, more to, I'm more concerned with you personally as applied this to your life. But when we think about application of Scripture, even the learning the Scripture, we have to understand that when we get through any passage of Scripture, it doesn't matter if you're a mature believer or an immature believer or a young believer. All Scripture is applicable to us. We need to... Uh, be mindful every time we're under the teaching of God's word in the context of preaching or a Bible study or even your own devotions that 
you need to learn it. There, there's never a time in your life where you should stop growing and wanting to feed on God's word. As we dive into this book for the next months, there, there's several months, there are some things that uh, we want everyone to know about Jesus. From the immature, the young Christians, to the seasoned Christians, there's something that is for everyone. Because in our own finite minds, we can never fully grasp all there is to know about our Lord. Scripture is designed for all of us. It's our food. It sustains us. It allows us to know more about our Savior. The reason why we are going through this book, uh, I really have two main reasons of why I want to go through 1 John. There's a question that a lot of people ask me, and I decided to to share my thoughts with you during the months leading up to this. There's really two reasons, and and these two reasons are summed up in the greatest commandments. It's to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love others as you will yourself. You love the Lord, and you love other people. The reason why... First reason is that we want to love Christ more. Uh, my hope is that as we go through First John, that, that the Lord becomes more and more precious to you. That in your mind, in, in your heart, you see how beautiful our Savior is and have that change your life. Have your life be conformed to the image of our Son. The clearer Jesus is in your life, the more you are, you'll be willing to live faithfully in obedience to him. The lower or the more obscure Christ is, the less you will submit to his word. We need to have a higher view of Jesus, a greater picture of who Jesus really is. And there's no better way than to start with that than 1 John. 1 John is a book about affections, about what you love and how that dictates on how you live out your life. And this book oftentimes is considered one of the hardest books to preach, not because the Greek is difficult or the English is difficult, but because it's really repetitive. A lot of, this, a lot of the things that you hear in, in, throughout this entire series would be simply you need to love God and how you demonstrate that love for God is how you love other people. The more you love the Father, the more you love Jesus Christ, the more you will love other people, which is the second reason why I want us to go through this book is not only because we love Christ more, but we want to, I want us to love other people more. And that's the other half of the greatest commandments. It's really a call for us to think beyond ourselves. And when we think about church ministry, ministry is not about us. It's not, it involves us, but it's not centered around us. Oftentimes we think, oh, why can't we have this type of program, or why can't we have this and that? It's, yeah, these things are great, and they're fine, but the reason why we should do these things is because we should be outward-focused. When you guys are here every Friday or when you're here on Sunday, it should not be about you. You shouldn't be coming to church to think to yourself, what can I get out of it? That's the way the world views the things like entertainment. But the church is for you to, to, to know God, to be equipped with God's Word so that you can serve other people. You can, the mature believers, once they understand what God's word has to say, will use their gifts to serve others in their life. This is uh, part of the reason why I want us to learn to love uh, one another more so that we can figure out a way to, you know, figure out each other's needs and we try, to, uh, we try our way to meet those needs. I was reminded of the sports illustration where when we think about things, if you think about like, let's say like football or something, when you think about the hurdle, the huddles or the, or the training or when they're in the locker room, that's like, that's like, the, like the, the Bible studies or the preaching. That's where you're being equipped to know what to do. You're strategizing, you're thinking about how to uh, uh, know more about God. But when you're playing the game, that's everyday life. You, that's, that's applying God's word in everyday life. And so in a sense, every Christian should not be a passive watcher or, or observer. There is no such thing as a, a, a Christian that just, just passively in, in being part of a church. You have to be actively involved. You, you, you serve the church. You're part of different ministries because the Christianity is about other people. It's about serving others, whether it's evangelism or day camp or CBM or mercy, foster the bay or nursery, whatever ministries that appear, you do these things because it's out of a love for the Lord. and You want to serve other people. That's my hope, is that you will learn to love God more, and, to, and, then you will, and, and as a result of that love for the Lord, the greater affections you have for the Lord, the more you will love other people. 
we think about conflicts within the church, all of those things would be resolved if you just love the way that Christ loves. This church is really good in terms of learning the Bible. You guys are, in some sense, professional Bible listeners. Uh, some of the high schoolers, some of you high schoolers uh, that graduated from high school uh, this last year and, and now with us, uh, you guys remember the last CBM camp where the speaker only spoke for like 30 minutes. And I remember I was there and these, some of the high schools came up and was like freaking out. Like, oh, he only preached for 30 minutes because you know, the people here are used to like an hour sermons. And that's rare. You understand that what, like, our, for our church and a lot of the churches that we're familiar with, an hour sermon is really unique. And in some sense, because of that, we're, we're, no, we're really like professional Bible listeners. We sit there, we take notes, we can even repeat the things that the preacher has to say. But the hope of the series is that, and is that you will love Christ more. Again, it's very tempting for us when we go through a book like this to think, okay, now what do I need to do? Like, oh, I hear these verses about I need to love others. What do I need to do? But my hope is actually even more fundamental than that. It isn't just that you find things to do immediately, but rather you love Christ more, that you love him more passionately, that you, love him, that you desire him more than anything. My hope is that it's not that you know how to appear to be saved, but that you are truly impacted and out of the outflow of the gospel that you love others in your life. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, one evidence of that is how you live your life. Your life must be radically different from the rest of the world. If you don't see new life, there's a possibility that you need a new life. This is why the book of John begins this way. John wants us to know Jesus so that we have assurance in him and in all that he has done for us. This book, by way of just explaining the background of this book, is written by the Apostle John. At this point, John is, is the last living apostle. He was one of the original 12. And he is now reaching the end of his life. He's giving some final instructions before he meets and sees his Savior once again. This John is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, that wrote the second and third John in the book of Revelation. And it is important because this John is the same John that is known as the, like the closest friend of Jesus, is the, is the disciple that Jesus loved. This book was written around 90 AD, which tells you that it's about 60 years after Christ has ascended into heaven. And John, at this point, is in elderly person. Chapter 2, verse 1, he describes, he describes this church as my little children. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you little children. Verse 18 of chapter 2, children, it is the last hour. John is speaking as a veteran of the faith. He has in his mind, in terms of the audience, a second and third generation believers who are struggling with their salvation. There are some in this church that, he, that are reading this letter that needed to be challenged, and there are also others that needed assurance. For some of the Christians that's reading this, their excitement for Christianity has dwindled, diminished, and waned. And I'm sure that in the group like this, in a church like this, it's, this, could be, this could happen to some of you. The excitement of Christianity is no longer there since the first time you became a believer. That, that, that desire to learn more about the Lord is suddenly slowed down. That passion that you once had, that fire that you have is just a little spark now. And John is trying to convey to the people to have a greater affection for him, to challenge your own faith, to see if you really are walking with the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 13, he tells you the summary statement of why he wrote this letter. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is why I love about the book of uh, the way that John writes. He's really specific on why he writes what he writes. And in the Gospel of John, he explains that the reason why he's writing this is to show the miraculous works of Christ so that people will believe in him. But this church here that, that read this original letter is not immune to any attacks. There were people in the context of this original audience that. We're drawing people away from the faith. 
These were known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics were people who believed that they have some sort of special divine revelation and that they are the ones that have the answers. And the, all the things that they heard about Jesus is, is not complete, and they have the right answers. So the, John, the apostle here, is trying to counter that as well. Imagine if you were in the context of the original church, you see like a like hundred people in the original church, and all of a sudden you just see that number dwindle to like 75, then 50. And you're left wondering, did the people that leave the body, did the people that leave the church, did they have the right gospel, or did we have the right gospel? And this is what John is trying to reinforce in their life, that there are going to be people that leave the church that, are, that was never part of the church to begin with. He's trying to give them assurance, but at the same time, he wants to challenge those who are still part of this, that is still part of this Gnostic movements to, to repent. This letter is designed to be a bomb for those that are, are struggling with their assurance and is uncertain about their faith. But yet at the same time, this letter is, is a rebuke and, and a challenge to all those false teachers that have crept into the church. It's to give assurance and to challenge those that are in the church. These false teachers didn't deny most of the teachings. They wanted to just add a few things about Jesus. They wanted to blend in the teachings of the world and philosophy with Christianity. And John's hope is that these false teachers' teachings will be eradicated. One of the things that Gnostics taught is that physical th uh, things are bad and the spiritual things are good. So anything that's physical uh, is bad and corrupted. So in their eyes, Jesus cannot be a real person. Jesus must be the spirit floating around because if Jesus is truly good and the physical body is bad, therefore Jesus can't have a physical body. So they start saying that Jesus was just this, this, this ghostly figure, that he's not real. They're, and the problem with, the, with this is they deny the, the bodily his, historical Jesus, who is the same God. And they think the Gnostics view is how can God, who is spirit, be good and at the same time inhabit a physical corrupted body? This led, the, this led a bunch of conclusions, and the, one of them is that the incarnation is not true. The issue then is the issue now, and that is who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? How do we know him? And the scriptures present Jesus as fully man and fully God. The Gnostics believe that this can't be, while John is trying to guard the church from this lie. John here is laying down the foundation for the rest of the book. John is not dealing with generalities, but John is writing with complete certainty. John never writes about Jesus as if he was just some figment of his own imagination, but he is explaining and trying to explain to Jesus the one that he knew in the flesh. He was the closest disciple of Jesus, and he needs to ensure the church that they know this Jesus as well. So how can we have assurance in our salvation? Well, there's three points I have for us this evening. How do you know if you have genuine, true salvation? Well, there's three things. First is that Jesus is real. You need to know that Jesus is real. You need to know that true fellowship is from Jesus. And lastly, you need to know that Jesus is your joy. Check your own hearts and your minds, because if Jesus is not in these three things, then there are chances, there's a chance that you might have a false gospel. So the first point is that Jesus is real. We see this from verse 1 to the beginning of verse 3. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You'll notice that this phrase sounds familiar. It's a callback to the, the, the gospel of John in John chapter 1, which is a callback to Genesis chapter 1. The point being that Jesus was not someone that was created it was not part of the created order, but he was there before the beginning of the earth. This is not saying the beginning of his earthly ministry or his birth, but rather it would be before time. This speaks of the eternality and the deity of Jesus Christ. The real Jesus is the real God who existed before the universe became a reality. You notice that what we have heard and what we have seen in the Greek is this perfect tense. And we don't have this perfect tense idea in the English. And the idea is that something that happened in the past that have lasting effects to the present day. So something that, that happened in the past that still impacts us today. An illustration to this is if you were, let's say, driving on the freeway. If you're driving on the 101 or the 
or wherever, uh, try, try to get to your destination, you notice there's a, a slowdown. There's a whole bunch of traffic. You, you may not have seen the accident, but you know that there must have been something that, that happened in the past and that you're experiencing the effects of it in the present moment. There was an accident, there, therefore you are in a traffic. This is, the, this is what it means to have a, a perfect tense. And for John, we're saying things that he's heard and things they've seen. That means that what Christ has, what he's seen in Christ, and what he's heard from Christ in the past, is still affecting not just them but our time as well. And this is what John is trying to get at. All the things that Jesus has that has said, all the things that he has seen, affects them and affects us now. And we know that in that in the book of Colossians, it said that that Christ holds the world with his words. Even in the gospel, in John 3.16, when it says that in order for us to be saved, we need to believe in him. It's something that he's done in the past, dying for us on this cross in the past. And that effect of the cross goes all the way until the present day and into the future. John is saying all that he has heard and all that he has seen impacts them and us today. Notice. He said, what we have looked with our eyes. This word is to look intently. It's not just a passing glance. This is looking at the evidence closely. He saw Jesus with his own eyes, and he studied the life of Jesus. He said, and then you notice, he said, he touched with, with our hands. It's almost as this proof has reached its apex. In order to combat all the cult to deny the humanity of Jesus, touching Jesus dispels this claim. Many people could have misheard uh, uh, Jesus. Maybe someone could imitate their voice or someone can just say something that paraphrasing what Jesus has said. But to really touch him, to have the physical contact with him dispels all of those claims because John was close to Jesus. John experienced the humanity of Jesus. And you know in the gospel, he leaned on Jesus. He, he touched him when he rose from the dead. John heard the words of the Savior. He looked at the miracles of Jesus with his own eyes, and he touched the Savior with his bare hands. John is stressing that his authority is as one of the eyewitnesses of a real Jesus. Jesus is real. Notice this phrase, concerning the word of life. The gospel hinges on the reality that Jesus is real. He is not just some spirit. The historical incarnation of Jesus Christ is part of the gospel. It is impossible to separate the eternality and the humanity of Jesus. You need both because God in in human form, Christ, is fully man and fully God. In Luke chapter 24, verse 39, John felt and saw a physical Jesus. He felt the real Jesus. The message about Jesus is closely related to who Jesus is. Verse 2, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we have testified and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. John makes it obvious that life has been revealed. The eternal one came into the world, and everyone saw him and experienced him. The object of eyewitnesses proclamation is one and the same. The one knows from the beginning and the one that gives eternal life is the same. The one true God in eternal life has revealed itself in history. John is fighting for the deity of Christ. John is writing against those that deny the eternality, the historicity, and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And this denial of Jesus' humanity also is a denial of the atonement as well. Because you can't have a physical person die if for you in your place if that person is not physically there. The Gnostics did not believe that Jesus was a physical person. They didn't believe he was real. Therefore, there is no atonement. If we think about our life, if you attack any aspect of theology or try to take away any attribute of God, you're going to attack and essentially have a false God. Part of being ashamed of the gospel is we choose to accept and deny aspects of the Lord. We see this in the world today. Certain people say, like, well, God is, is too loving uh, for us, for him to punish sin. Or, or God is, is okay with this, sin and that. That's denying the holiness of God. Or uh, Christ said that he's the only way to heaven. That, that's this exclusive uh, way to salvation, 
but, but people say, no, 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 that's, not, that's just one way. You're, you're denying aspects of who he is. You're just denying the oneness of God. You're denying that he is the one true God. One reason why it's hard for us to do evangelism in the modern day is because a lot of people hate that the Bible makes these exclusive claims. But this book that we have, everything that we have is God's word. Everything that is revealed is what God wants us to know about him. The Bible is definitive in that the only way to heaven is through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that there is no name under heaven that can get us into heaven except for Jesus Christ. John's hope is to equip the readers to take, to take his concluding command to guard themselves from idols, that is, these false Christs and these false religion. In short, John's central purpose is to encourage his reader to persevere in the proclamation of Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Notice the end of verse 2. said that, he, that, that the Father revealed it to us. The eternal God came and manifested to them. John is trying to drive into their minds that Jesus really existed. The point is that there was never a time in all of time that Jesus did not exist. And this is a vital part of who Jesus is. If, you know, if you've ever talked to any cult, there's always going to be a denial of an aspect of Christ. If you talk to a, a Muslim, they're going to say that Jesus is not God. If you, and, and he's not part of the Trinity. If you talk to Jehovah's Witness, they deny the Trinity as well. And they say that Jesus is not the eternal God. He's just one of the Son of God. You talk to uh, the Mormons, they say that he's one of many gods. Every false religion deny an aspect of who Jesus is. And when you do that, when you take certain things out of the attribute of God, or you put at certain things, this is a false Christ altogether. Jesus dwelt among them, and John was one of those people that, that he dwelt with. He lived with Jesus, and he gave John eternal life. Look at the beginning of verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Notice that, John, notice that what John has seen and heard, he stated this earlier. And I believe the reason why he states this again is to make the reader see that John saw Jesus with his own eyes and heard him with his own ears. Jesus was not some ethereal spirit, but was human. John highlights the reality of the incarnation of the word of life by giving first place to seeing this incarnate God whom John both saw and heard, is the one that John proclaims to his readers. This is not something that he made up from his mind. This is not someone that John read about somewhere. This is not someone he's heard about. No, Jesus was someone that John saw with his eyes and heard with his ears. He's, he lived life with this Jesus. All that is real to, All this is real to John and many others that proclaim the truth. And it's because that Jesus is true and Jesus is real that John is delivering this real message. If Jesus is not real to you, then you cannot expect other people to accept that Jesus is real. You cannot convince other people in your life that Jesus is real if Jesus is not real to you. And this is a crucial point. We, all, we need to tell people that Jesus is a real person. John and the other apostles claim this message because they know Jesus is real and want others to have a real relationship with Christ. This is what we call evangelism. We're commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. If you believe that statement is real, then you believe that Jesus is real, and then you'll submit to his word. And if you aren't willing to invite people to his kingdom, to the family of God, then you need to ask yourself, why not? And one reason why that is is because Jesus is not real to you. Is there someone in your life that you're praying for? Because if you understand every aspect of God's word, if it's real, then everything that's said in it is going to happen. All the blessings of putting faith in him is going to happen. And all of the judgment from denying Jesus will also happen. If those things are real to you, you will live for him because he is a real God. One of the things that John MacArthur talked about when he was talking with Larry King, uh, Larry King was amused by John MacArthur because he said, you seem to really believe that the Bible is true. And, and, and I wonder, if, if someone was to talk to you about your faith, do, will they recognize that Jesus is real in your life? Do you believe everything that the Bible holds? Do you believe everything that the Bible tells you 
is true? Or do you nitpick certain things about Christ to fit your own worldview? If Jesus is real, then you must share this Jesus with all, that, with all those that are in your life. Is there anyone that you're praying for? Is there anyone you're trying to witness to? Sometimes people ask me, how do I become a better evangelist? How can I be more bold for Christ? How can I be a, a, a better uh, evangelist? And then really the simple answer is like, Jesus just needs to be real in your life. He just needs to be real. You need to see him as a real person. He is the eternal God. Sadly, that isn't the case for all of us. Sometimes the world can see straight through us. They, he, they hear us going to church or he, maybe see us pray before a meal, but the way that we live our lives are contrary to that reality. Some of us will, will, will live life proclaiming Christ and no one will buy into it because our life doesn't show that, that Christ is real. You can't have sin be a norm in your life and expect people to be convinced that Jesus is real. How you live your life lets people around you know whether or not you really do believe that Jesus Christ is real. But if Jesus is real, the way it is real to the Apostle, and, and the, to Apostle John and many others in the world, it will impact every fiber of your being. It is a lie to claim that you believe Jesus is real and your spiritual life is fake. So is your life different ever since you profess Jesus Christ as Lord. If you look back to the time you became a believer, is there any different? Is there anything different? Are your affections the same? Is your lifestyle the same? What's changed since you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you truly do believe in Jesus, then your life will be really peculiar. Your life will be different because you'll be holy because Christ is holy. We are called to be distinct. Eternal life for the Christian doesn't actually begin the moment that we die, but rather it begins the moment we accept Jesus into our life. We won't hit glory in this life, but there should be a progressive sanctification that, we'll be, that we're slowly being more like Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is truly dwelling in your life, then you'll slowly be more and more like our Savior. But that's only the case if Jesus is truly real in your life. You can't have a real eternal life if Jesus is not real. So not only if Jesus is, must be real in your life, but if Jesus is also our fellowship. Our second point, Jesus is our true fellowship. Look at the middle of verse 3. So that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. Part of what John is saying for the Christian is that when they have fellowship, true union with Christ, that is what, that's what makes them have fellowship with one another. This word fellowship is a simple word. We know it because of the movie Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring, and how we know, and we, we even understand the context. Why is it? Why are these hobbits around? Why are they working with these elves and all these dwarves? It's because they have a fellowship around this ring. They have some common bond to, to do something with this ring. And for the Christian, it must be something so much more precious than that. For the Christian, it must always be Christ. The faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, brings us from being enemies of God to children of God. If it brings us from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. It removes the stony heart to give us a flesh-beating heart. It brings us out of the domain of darkness and into the domain of light. If this is true for the Christian, then they will have fellowship with other Christians. Fellowship with God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit must cause us to have true fellowship with one another because we share the same experience in our salvation. As Christians, you understand that when we use the term fellowship, it should not be taken in a light and cavalier way. Christian fellowship should be way more profound than simply asking each other, What's, what do you think of the sports game the night before? Christian fellowship is, is more than just talking about the latest technology or trends. Christian fellowship isn't just about the vacations or, or the trips or the life experience that you go through. 
True Christian fellowship is centered around Christ, is, is centered around God's word. Christian fellowship is centered, rooted, and grounded on Jesus Christ. Fellowship with, with other Christians must reflect something better. It should reflect something more glorious. Notice that John writes, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our union, first and foremost, is with Christ. Christian fellowship, true fellowship, is not one of the sentimental and superficial attachments of a random group of individuals, but we have something far greater and far more profound, and that is Christ. The Christian community is a partnership and experience. It is a, it is a common living of people who share the, this experience of salvation in Jesus Christ. When you look at the people around you that are believers, you understand that that person is, is redeemed and is rescued just like you are redeemed and rescued. So when you talk about with one another, you should be able to look past whatever life stage you're in. You should be able to look past, oh, uh, you're single or you're married. I can't, I can't fellowship with you because you're in a different life stage. No, the, what's more important than where you're at in your life stage is your, is your union in Christ. And when you look at other people, no matter the age, oh, you're, you're, you're too old for me. That's the wrong way of thinking about the church. God purchased us with his blood, and we have a little small taste of heaven in the way that we interact with one another. It has to be about Christ. So you, if you look back this last week, to those believers that you talk with, how many of the conversations actually centered around Christ, about how you can encourage one another to be more like Christ, whether you're confronting each other or encouraging one another to, to stimulate one another to be more like Christ, or you're looking towards eternity, you know, what are the things that you look forward to, the things that you think about heaven, are, are you trying to encourage each other to think about that reality, or even looking back at your salvation, how thankful you are that Christ saved you. There's so much to talk about through God's word. We can never exhaust the scriptures. The only reason why we would be tired of, talk, of fellowshipping one another is because we don't, really tr we don't truly love Christ the way that we should. How much of your talks are centered around things of this world as opposed to the world that is to come? My hope is that your only time of fellowship is not just Sunday mornings or Friday evenings. Hopefully in your life you're trying to be strategic and intentional in asking each other how the Lord is working in your life. You know, it's not that difficult to ask that question. We need to be willing to be transparent with one another. You know, you ask one another, you know, what have the Lord been teaching you this last week? You, last week you were struggling with this. How has the Lord gave you grace to be able to overcome this? And you should listen. You should be willing to be transparent because you understand that your identity is not in your failures. You know, we, we have this tendency to, to try to make Christianity about the good things that we do as opposed to the struggles that we have in our life. But if our identity is in Christ, if our identity is, is, is found in Christ, it doesn't matter the shortcomings that we've committed in this life because we know that God has forgiven those sins and you want other people to know your struggles so that you can encourage each other, so you can have other people pour truth into your life so that you can continue to be more like Christ. If you aren't using your time with one another to talk about truth, then it really reveals what's in your own heart. I hope you can see the connection. Jesus said that what comes out of the outflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. And if you, the things that are coming out of your mouth are not centered around Christ, then you need to really consider why is that? True fellowship only comes when it's centered around Jesus. If true fellowship is what we desire, then there should always be a priority of being with the body of Christ. And look, I'm not talking about like attendance. I don't really care too much about attendance or numbers. But I do care about the reason why you're here or not here. Some people come to church for the wrong reasons. Some people uh, are not at church for the right reasons. And it's not so much about the, what you, where you are presently, but where, why you are here and why you're not here. If you're here because you want to learn about God's word so that you can be equipped to minister to other people in your life, that's a good reason. If you're here to worship God, to sing praises to him, these are good, legitimate reasons. But if you're here just to 
find a spouse, or if you're here just to hang out and have snacks, that's a wrong reason to be here. This gives you this kind of false assurance that being amongst Christians make you a Christian. At the same time, I understand sometimes life circumstances come and you're not able to come on a Sunday or Friday night. I get that. The Lord doesn't care so much about where you are, but why you do what you do. If you love Christ, then you should also love to be around his people. So for those who are not here for the right reasons, they still wish that they were part of the body. That, that, that should tell you that this individual loves Christ and the bride of Christ. Does that describe you? Are you someone that, that truly loves to be with Christ and be around people that also love Jesus? Because if you're here for the wrong reasons, eventually you'll be found out. If not in this life, then for sure in eternity. This is why we need to encourage one another. We need to sharpen one another because our faith can be so fickle at times. Ask yourself, if you were to measure the types of conversations or the fellowship that you have with other Christians, is it really true fellowship? Is it really centered around Jesus Christ? Not only can you have assurance in knowing that and believing that Jesus is real or having fellowship in him, but lastly, is Jesus your joy? Verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One of the marks of a genuine Christian is the joy that they find in Christ. This joy is nothing less than the joy that comes from abiding in Christ's love. The hope for John and the rest of the apostle is that their joy would be, would be made complete as they see other people grow in their love for Christ. The fellowship that they have with one another is based on the word of God. John 15, verse 11. Christ tells them this. John 15, verse 11. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If you're if, if true joy, that's, it is, it's only, you can only find true joy with, when you have fellowship with Jesus Christ. If you are his, if you belong to Christ, that's where you find true and lasting joy. Christ, the Christian desires to be close with God themselves and want others to be close with God as well. This is why John ends this intro so that our joy may be made complete. John is a pastor that cannot be that cannot be completely happy as long as there are some people in the church that have not experienced the full blessings of the gospel. The Apostle John wants their joy to be made complete by seeing this church find their joy in Christ. Remember this context of this book, there's these Gnostics that were trying to draw people away to a false Christ. And John wants to warn them that if they go onto this path, that Christ that they think that they're following is not going to give them any true joy. His concern is rather that they not be led astray, but that they have full assurance that the Jesus that they know from the gospel they've heard is the, is the one true gospel that will give them true and lasting joy. So is Jesus your joy in your life? Are you more excited about the latest movies, this new sports game that's coming up, or whatever? Or are you excited about Christ. Just think about it. When you think about Saturday night, when you're Saturday night, when you're about to prepare for Sunday the next morning, what is your attitude towards the church or being part of, of, of the body of the, of the corporate worship? Do you think to yourself, ah, oh, it's Sunday the next day? Or do you find yourself excited to be able to learn, to fellowship, to sing to the Lord? Or do you find yourself, oh, there's other things that, that excite me more than Christ? In your heart, do you find yourself delighting in Christ and in Christ alone? There's a reason why people are constantly discontent, because their hope is not found on Jesus, but rather the sands. They're not building on the rock that is Jesus, but rather they're building the sand of things of the world. It's no surprise that if you, if you place your faith and your joy in something that's perishable, that your joy perishes also. The lasting power of your joy is completely tied to the object of your joy. If it's money, then the moment you lose a few dollars or when your account starts 
to lose money, that's when your joy will be lost as well. If it's in some sort of relationship with, some, with other people, the moment that uh, that relationship ends, you will lose your joy. If it's anything temporal, then so will your joy. Do you see the connection in your life between losing your joy and the circumstances that you place your trust in? True joy can only come from fellowship with God. If you ever wonder why you feel so empty, it's because nothing in this world can satisfy. Fellowship with Christ is the answer to the loneliness, to the emptiness and the sadness of life. This word joy only appears here in this book. In this book, it only appears in this verse, but the theme and the idea of joy runs throughout this book. Joy is not something that you manufacture or fabricate for yourself. Joy is a wonderful byproduct of our fellowship with God. Sin promises joy, but always leads to misery and, and unhappiness. Hebrews 11.25 tells us that Moses chose the, uh, to follow God as opposed to the fleeting pleasures of sin. If you contrast that to Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, it reads, You reveal the path of life to me, and your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. The joy that we have can only be found in Christ because he is the eternal God. The life that is that's really transformed in Christ is the only thing that can produce true joy. Karl Marx said this, the first requisite to people's happiness is the abolition of religion. And the scripture teaches contrary to Karl Marx. In fact, the scripture tells that without God, there is no joy. There is a great joy in knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we are now made, right? We have an inheritance in the future. We have glory. We get to have joy with him in the all of eternity. God is the one who acts to complete a believer's joy. So where, do you place, where have you placed your joy in, your, in this life? If you're a student here, if you place it in your GPA, you'll know over time that those GPA, those grades doesn't matter. Think about it. You, when you were in kindergarten, I'm sure some of you guys got A's in kindergarten. Right? But that doesn't last. That joy that you got in kindergarten is not going to sustain you now as an adult. In the same way, your GPA now as a student is not going to impact you 20, 50 years from now. That's not going to sustain you. That, that, that happiness that you get from your grade is not going to sustain you. Same with your jobs. You think, if I get this job, I can finally pay for things, and I can have all these things, and I'm going to be happy. Well, what happens when you are unable to work anymore? When the job, when the economy crashes and you lose that job? Is that hype, that that that? feeling of joy that you get in the beginning, is that really going to sustain you during the end? No, we need to find our joy in Christ. Because again, Christ is the eternal God. Our, if, if we place our joy and find all of our joy in this eternal God, then our joy will not be thwarted. It cannot be taken from us. Christ is our joy. If Jesus is real, if Jesus is the center of your fellowship, and if Jesus is your joy, then it stands to reason that you, tr- that you truly do have a right relationship with Christ, that Jesus is real to you. You understand that he lived and died and he rose again. This, these things are not in doubt in your mind. You know that he is real, that he is, he is the eternal God that entered into the world and lived the perfect life on our behalf. That's all fact and is real to you. And if, you're, and if your life is centered around Christ and your fellowship with one another, if you talk to one, people, if you talk to one another and you, and you really want to see how Christ is working in their life and you want to share what Christ is doing in your life, that's true fellowship. If that's your desire, then that stands to reason that you do have a right relationship with Christ because your desires and your affections are aligned with God. And if your joy is truly found in Christ, that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how dark life gets, you know that all you have is Christ, and that should bring great joy, knowing that you can never lose him, and he'll never forsake you, he'll never leave us. Remember that this book is a test of your assurance. There are people here that needs to be challenged because their affections are not where it should be. 
and there are other people that are doubting, that needs that insurance, who are wrestling through these three things. And I want to encourage those individuals to just continue to pursue Christ, to continue to grow in your affections for him. Christ doesn't care about what you do with your hands. He cares about what you are in your heart. And for those who are overconfident, I've heard this over and over again, you're the one that needs to be challenged. Because if, if Jesus is really real, then you should be a joyful person. All your talks with others should be encouraging and edifying and building one another up to be more like Christ. And then your life should be different. It should be radically different because Jesus is real in your life. But again, if those things are not real, but you claim to know Christ, understand there will become a day where Christ will look at you and say, depart from me for I never knew you. And you might think, well, I, I went to church. I did all of these religious things. How am I not saved? And the answer is that you never truly loved Christ, that your affection was never really there. You need to evaluate yourself. See if these truths describe you. Because if they don't, then you need to turn. And you have this moment of God's mercy in your life to turn from him today. But if these things are true, rest assured that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, and one day you will be with him for all of eternity. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we're reminded of, of the fact that you are eternal, that you never fade, and you don't need and you've never there was never a time in existence that you did not exist, that you were always there. And we're so thankful that you are such a God that we can worship. You, that all of your, all that you are, um, is something that we can never fathom. That you're beyond us. That you are so much greater than us. And we're thankful that you've enabled us to know your word, to study it. And you've, we're thankful you've given us your word to reveal yourself to us. And although we may never fully comprehend you in this life, we're thankful that you that you that you woke us up from our slumber, from our deadness. You brought us into new life that's only found in your son. I pray for those who do not know you this evening, that uh, you will soften their hearts, that you make yourself real to them, that you convict them that they need to know you if they want to have eternal life, that all joy and blessing and fellowship can only happen the moment that they place their faith in you. Lord, challenge all of us, uh, correct us, convict us of sin so that we can be uh, more like your son, Lord. We thank you for this time. We also pray that as we talk about this message, uh, that the, the, the conversations would be encouraging to one another, uh, that we are transparent, that we're willing to uh, reveal our vulnerabilities and our struggles, knowing that our identity is not in our failures, but is in what you've done on the cross on our behalf. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.